Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Bartley and a Bible. This is your hub for biblically faithful expository teaching of the Bible. Here, my aim is to seriously study God's Word and then to offer you the opportunity, should you take it, to tag along on that journey with me. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm your host, Bartley Nethery. And I'd also like to thank those of you who stuck it out with me through episode one. I hope the exposition of Romans 1, 16, and 17 was helpful for you. And I pray that you learned something that gave you a bigger view of who God is, His work in the world, and the mission that He has called you to do. Now, if you enjoyed that first episode, or if you found any value at all in my teaching, there are a couple of really simple ways that you can tremendously help Bartley and the Bible. The first of those is that you can subscribe. Let the algorithms know you're listening and that you want to hear more. And what that's going to do is that's also going to update you every time we drop new content. Second of all, you can consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else it is that you listen to podcasts. It's a significant boost in our visibility and, and in people's ability to find us as a podcast. And finally, if you know someone personally, somebody that's a friend or a family member or in Sunday school with you or that works with you or whatever the case is that would benefit from this type of Bible study, take a second to share the podcast with them. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for all of your help and your support. With those things out of the way, uh, today I think you'll notice, and, and I hope that you notice, a marked difference in the audio quality. The reason for that difference is because my new microphone and adapters finally showed up. I'm hoping that the audio experience will be a whole lot more pleasant from this point forward. So, today I want you to continue along with me into my passion as a Bible teacher that passion is to make disciples. And I want to build on last week's exposition of Romans 1, 16 and 17 as we do that. So it's my prayer, and it has been my prayer, that what you heard last week was a clarity in my passion to make disciples. And this week, I want to take you on a journey through John chapter 4, verses 31 to 38, to show you now the passion of Jesus for this very same thing. So, grab your Bible, settle in, and let's study God's Word together. So, John chapter 4, verses 31 to 38 says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. 
others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So there are four observations that I really want to make out of this passage that I want to draw out to you as we study it together. And as we look at this, one of the first things I want you to notice is that evangelism provides spiritual nourishment. Provides spiritual nourishment. So look back uh, in verse 32. Jesus says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And the disciples immediately go into this questioning one another and asking each other, well, did you bring him something to eat? Did you bring him something to eat? I didn't bring him anything. And they're really confused. And this is a common theme throughout the Gospel of John. If you study the whole book, uh, this happens a lot because John records these literal misunderstandings of something figurative or analogous that Jesus was trying to say. If you look back at a few different passages in John chapter 2 verse 20, the Bible says the, the Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? And obviously here, this is a literal misunderstanding. They misunderstood what Jesus was talking about. Here we know that he was obviously talking about his physical body. Jesus was saying that you're going to tear down this temple. You're going to tear down my physical body. And then three days later, I'm going to raise it up again. Not the actual literal temple that was right before them as they talked. The same thing happens in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, here again, Jesus makes a statement that is meant to be a spiritual thing. It's meant to be a a spiritual birth, not a physical birth, but Nicodemus confuses this figurative statement of Jesus, this analogous statement that Jesus makes as something literal, as physical birth rather than a new spiritual transformation that comes through faith in Jesus. And in the very chapter that we're looking at in John chapter 4, back up into verse 15, this is the story, of course, of the woman at the well. And Jesus is talking to her, and he tells her everything that she's ever done. They, they talk about all of her many husbands, and they talk about how the person she's living with now is not her husband. And then the woman in verse 15 says to Jesus, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor have to come all the way here to draw water. So this woman literally takes Jesus' word literally because in all of these things, Jesus says, if you were to drink of the water that I give you, you'll never thirst again. And this woman at the well, she wants that. She longs for that ability to... To never thirst again, to never have to walk out to this well and draw water again. So she's looking at this in a very literal way, but Jesus is obviously, to us as we read the New Testament, is obviously talking about the water of life. Uh, because he would later say, I am the way, the truth, and 
and the life. So when he tells the woman at the well, the water that I give you, if you drink it, you'll never thirst again, she confuses that for literal water. And this happens all throughout the Gospel of John. John really enjoys recording these types of things as he goes through his gospel. And we come to the same thing here in verses 31 through 38. We see Jesus gives this patient explanation to his disciples of the food that he is referring to. So he tells them there in verse 32, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples go into this crazy questioning about who is it that brought him food? Where did he get this food? He sent us into town to get the food. So why is it that he says he's got food that we don't know about? And Jesus dives into this in verse 34. He says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So the question that we have to ask as we're studying this is what is this will of God and this work that took priority over food for Jesus? Now, we can see this uh, in several places, but there are a couple of important verses for us to point out to see what this will of him who sent Jesus and this work of him who sent Jesus is. And Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, verse 17, exactly what that is, the reason that he came, the reason that God sent him into the world. Verse 17 in chapter 3 says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And he said in Luke 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So one thing that is very clear from these statements and many, many others that Jesus made throughout the Gospels, the will and the work of Jesus was that he was sent to bring salvation to all those who would believe. This was the priority for Jesus, and it was the primary provision of his earthly life. I mean, just think about the question. Ask yourself this question. When is the last time that you were so excited about what God was doing around you and through you that eating, that physical food, physical sustenance literally went out the window. It went to the back of the line on your priority list in the place of spiritual nourishment, the way that Jesus explains it in our text. In other words, when is the last time that you were so excited about the work that God had you involved in that you forgot to eat? It took precedence over stuffing your face. When's the last time that happened? If you're like me, that's not something that happens on a regular basis. It's something for us to think about. And for Jesus, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So the first observation is that evangelism provides spiritual nourishment. But more than that, the observation number two is that evangelism is positioned for success. It's positioned for success. So twice in our text, Jesus takes a proverbial statement. He takes uh, one of the wisdom sayings, uh, one of the 
if you wanted to put it this way, the things old people say of that day, and he flips this proverbial statement over on its head. We're going to look at one of those now, and then we're going to deal with another one here in just a minute. But there's this contrast that we need to pay attention to that Jesus sets up in verse 35. Jesus says, Do you not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. So there's this contrast here. There's this dichotomy that Jesus sets up. First of all, he says, you say, you say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Now, this is a proverbial statement. This is a wisdom saying that comes from the Palestinian culture in the first century uh, and around the first century. And really all it stands for and all it represented was the time between planting and the earliest point that you could possibly harvest. So it's a really simple statement that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. The allegory that, that Jesus uses to show the process of spiritual harvest is found here in this idea of the wheat harvest. Jesus is kind of drawing these two things together. He's painting a picture for us. And he says, so you say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. But the other side of this dichotomy, he says, now here's what I say. Lift up your eyes, look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Now, if we just look right here in the immediate context, we just talked about Jesus has just met with the Samaritan woman, uh, and the Samaritan woman has found out from Jesus that he has this living water, that he is the Messiah that was promised by the Old Testament, and she has run back to the city, and she is bearing witness to this man that she's met. And as a result, all of this big group of people have immediately left what they were doing, and they're coming outside of the city to where Jesus is. If you want to put it this way, they are ready for harvest. Now, this is interesting because Jesus tells his disciples, as this is happening, to lift up your eyes and look on the fields because they're white for harvest. Now, when you think about the white fields, it's, it's very, very possible that Jesus was just simply referring to the wheat harvest. Uh, as they looked out across the fields, uh, all of the wheat that had yet to been harvested, uh, that had yet to be harvested, was dancing in the wind across the hillside. And Jesus was saying, Look at the fields because they're white for harvest. And, and it was really just an analogy for Jesus. But there's also this possibility that's really interesting to me uh, for white fields because the common dress in the Mediterranean area, uh, in that culture of the day, uh, for their daily clothes, for the clothes that they worked in throughout the week, was white robes, or, or at the very least, off-white robes. Now, this is a large crowd that the woman has drawn from the city that's coming back with her to meet Jesus. So it's very possible that Jesus is sitting there with his disciples. This Samaritan woman is bringing this giant crowd of people back up to meet Jesus. And Jesus says, look, you say there are four months and then comes the harvest. 
But what I say is lift up your eyes. Look on the fields. In other words, look at this large crowd of people that are coming up the hillside. They are white for harvest. It's an interesting thing to think about. So as we think about this passage, but before we move on to our next observation, there are a couple of universal truths that we can take away from this, that we can draw out of it. And the first of those is that in evangelism, waiting is wasting. You know, so often what I find is that Christians will excuse themselves from the sending aspect of following Jesus simply by waiting. They just wait. Maybe you're waiting to learn more. Maybe it is uh, your excuse is that you're waiting to feel more. You want you want to feel more from God. You want to feel closer to God before you jump into evangelism and sharing the gospel. Maybe your excuse is that you're waiting until you get to a different season of life, a, a season of life when you don't have kids and you don't have uh, so many responsibilities and then it'll be easier. Then, then Jesus, then I'll go and I'll share the gospel. Or maybe your excuse is that you're waiting for a title or a specific position before you start sharing the gospel. Maybe your excuse is that you're waiting for the perfect witnessing strategy. You just, you've gone through evangelism explosion. You've gone through the three circles. You've gone through sharing Jesus without fear. You've went through every witnessing strategy you can find and none of them are perfect and you're just waiting for somebody to come out with the perfect witnessing strategy, and then you'll participate in evangelism. Or maybe you're waiting for the perfect pastor. I don't know what your excuse is. It could be many, many things. You fill in the blank, but there are so many things that people use as excuses to wait to get involved in sharing the gospel. And I want you to know as we look at what Jesus has to say here that in evangelism, waiting is wasting. Uh, second universal truth is that in evangelism, the mission is now. Evangelism in our day and age is easier than it has ever been at any point in redemptive history. The hard work has already been done for you. The law and the prophets, they paved the way for Jesus to come. And then Jesus did indeed come incarnate, took on human flesh, died for sin, and resurrected three days later to purchase eternal life for you and for me and for the sins of the whole world. And the Holy Spirit now, through Jesus, has been given to everyone who puts their faith and their trust in Him. We have access to the whole redemptive plan of God signed and sealed in the completed Bible in God's Word. So in evangelism, what I want you to see from this passage is that, G that the mission is now. Jesus believes that the mission is now. Evangelism is easier now than it has ever been, and we need to not be waiting we need to be involved now in sharing the gospel. And the final universal truth, and then we'll move on, is that in evangelism, there is a guarantee of success. Now, don't be confused by this truth, because there are a lot of 
different perceptions of what success is. And our idea in the Western world of what success is differs from what God's idea of success actually is. We can see a little bit of this uh, from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in verses 6 through 9. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So, don't be confused about what the idea of success is when I say that evangelism comes with a guarantee of success. Because here's what God's idea of success is. When he looks at your effort to share the gospel, there is no labor toward sharing the gospel, toward sharing your faith that's in vain. In God's eyes, every single step of that process is a success. It doesn't matter if you're rejected. It doesn't matter if the person won't even let you speak. It doesn't matter if the person throws things at you. It doesn't matter if they yell at you. It doesn't matter what happens if you take that step in obedience to share the gospel with someone or to make an attempt to share the gospel with someone in God's eyes, that is a success. So in evangelism, waiting is wasting. The mission is now, and it comes with a guarantee of biblical success. So we've observed so far that evangelism provides spiritual nourishment. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. We've also seen that evangelism is positioned for success. Jesus says, I say, lift up your eyes, look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. And then the third observation we need to make here is that evangelism produces an eternal impact. Look at verse 36. In verse 36, Jesus says, already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Now, the importance of the eternal impact of evangelism shouldn't be lost on the church today. Um, if you're a Christian, if you are a part of the church, if you know Jesus, you know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all those who believed. And if I were to sit down with each and every one of you and ask you, I'm sure that you could tell me stories just like mine of how it is that the gospel came to you and the eternal impact that that gospel has had in your life. Listen to this. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, Peter tells us, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Check this part out. For in this way, 
the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Man, that's what the gospel is. The gospel is the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we should be sharing that with others. We should be offering that abundant supply to other people as we share the gospel. How insincere and cruel do you have to be to possess the only darkness-piercing light and yet to keep it hidden? Because that's what we're doing when we know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And the Bible tells us how can they believe if they don't hear it? And how can they hear it if there's not a preacher? How insincere and cruel it is of us to know the gospel, to know it is the power of God unto salvation and to keep it hidden, to keep it to ourselves, to not share it because we're worried about what people might think. To not share it because we're worried about the reaction that we might get. To not share it because we're worried that we might lose a friend. I would suggest to you that 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 is a very warped way of looking at the gospel. Because if we believe it's the power of God unto salvation, then we believe that those people that don't have it are living in condemnation and that if they die, they're going to die for all of eternity. They're going to be separated from God in hell for all of eternity. So how in the world could we possibly keep quiet about the power of God unto salvation to all those who believe? How can we keep the gospel hidden when we know that it's the only darkness-piercing light in this evil world? Something for us to think about. Jesus said, He who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life. So evangelism provides spiritual nourishment. Evangelism is positioned for success. Evangelism produces an eternal impact. And then finally, the last observation I want us to make is that evangelism participates in providence. Verse 37, I told you a minute ago that we were going to look at another proverbial statement or a wisdom saying that Jesus flips over on its head. And we're going to find that in verse 37. That says, For in this case the saying is true, One sows and another reaps. Okay. Now, this has some very special significance in biblical history. It doesn't sound like very much, One sows and another reaps. Okay, whatever. Uh, but it has a lot of significance in biblical history. Uh, one, of the, one of the most significant things about this saying is that it most commonly deals with the dichotomy between the rich and the poor. The poor were typically in biblical literature seen as the laborers. They were the ones who were out plowing. They were planting the fields. They were out weeding everything to make sure it didn't get choked up by weeds and the crop would grow. They're the ones generally that are doing all of the hands-on work to take care of the crops to make sure that there's a healthy crop. And the rich, on the other hand, 
are the employers of all of these laborers or they're the owners of all these laborers in the case that uh, they were slaves or servants. But the rich people are the ones not that work in the field. They're not the ones who sow, but they're the ones who reap the harvest. And most importantly, they're the ones who reap the profits from the harvest. So that's a a significant thing about what Jesus says here is that this is dealing with the rich and the poor. Uh, One sows and the other reaps. But also there's another significance, especially for the nation of Israel, because this saying deals with a common judgment of Israel. Uh, In Micah chapter 6, verse 15, the prophet records one of God's judgments on the nation of Israel, and this is what he says. You will sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olive, but you will not anoint yourself with oil. And the grapes, but you will not drink the wine. So Jesus here in our passage, you've got uh, these things that are significant about it. So when the disciples hear Jesus, quote, one sows and another reaps, these are the things that are on their mind. But Jesus takes that and he flips it upside down. And he says in the next verse, in verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. So you now are the one who is reaping what you have not sown, okay? So what he's talking about here is you just think about all of the labor that has went into coming to the point where they sit in this passage right now. You think about the Old Testament. You can go all the way back to Abraham. You can go back to Abraham's faithfulness. God called Abraham and called him to be his people. And Abraham stepped out in obedience, left everything he knew to follow God. That landed them uh, eventually into Egypt. And then we come to the work of Moses. You think about the labor of Moses in the Old Testament. Uh, God used him to free Israel from exile, uh, to free them from their bondage in Egypt. God used Moses to bring the law to the people. God used Moses to lead his people more than the labor of Moses. You have to think about the labor of the prophets. The prophets came before and they wrote and they proclaimed, paving the way for Jesus. And then you just think about, uh, for our day and time, Jesus himself. Jesus came incarnate in human flesh, as we mentioned a minute ago. He lived a perfect life. He died a sinless, sacrificial death as atonement, as redemption, as propitiation for your sins and for mine. And then he was raised again three days later, defeating death, hell, and the grave for you and I so that through our faith in him, we can participate in that resurrection life. And you think about even more than that, all of the faithful believers, including the disciples and the New Testament Christians who came before us and their work in evangelism and their work in bringing the gospel to every corner of the world. Uh, You think about the faithful believers that labored to plant and to water before you were able to reap the harvest of somebody's salvation when you shared the gospel with them. So in one sense, Jesus is telling the disciples, look, there's a lot of things that have happened 
a lot of labor that you didn't have to do so that now you can reap that for which you have not labored. And in another sense, we, you and I today, we have the same benefit. We reap from so many things, from so many people that labored, and we're reaping the harvest of that labor. Whether that's martyrs who died bringing the gospel to different nations, to different peoples. Maybe that's those Bible translators who translated the Bible in English despite the threat of death so that you and I, as English speakers, could read God's Word. In that sense, we reap what it is that we have not labored for. So Jesus says, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. And then more than that, Jesus says, others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now, this is the difference from that wisdom saying, because the wisdom saying, remember, was one sows and another reaps. So there's a dichotomy. You have two different groups of people, the sowers and the reapers. And so far, Jesus has kind of stuck with that framework, but then he gets here and he says, you have entered into their labor. So here, Jesus combines the two. This phrase, entered into, in the Greek means joined with or benefited together from. Now, you think about what Paul said. While some people plant, while some people water, and while some actually reap the harvest when it comes to evangelism, Jesus makes it very clear that each and every part in this process participates in the providence of of God's plan. So instead of dividing the sowers and the reapers, as this proverb normally did, it set two different people groups against one another, the rich versus the poor. Jesus takes that, he flips it upside down, and he brings the two together. And Jesus says both, whether you're the one who sows, whether you're the one who reaps, it doesn't matter. Both are participating in the providence of God's plan through the results of their work. So both, as verse 36 tells us, they rejoice together. So as you think about these verses, as you think about John 31 to 38, remember these observations. Evangelism provides spiritual nourishment. Evangelism is positioned for success from the get-go. Evangelism produces an eternal impact. And evangelism participates in the providence of God's plan. And I would encourage you, if you're not already, grab a hold of a passion to share the gospel. Because what Romans 1 told us last week is that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. And if we truly believe that, we shouldn't be keeping the gospel hidden. We shouldn't be waiting because waiting is wasting. We should be out sharing the gospel with every single person who will give us the opportunity to tell them about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. 